for a great job last week. Wisdom Life, Proverbs 4. Really appreciated that very much. We're going to be reminded again today through the Word of God, Spirit of God guiding Solomon, to remind us that there are only two views on life. We're going to see it again and realize that we're going to live one of those two views every day. We really are. One of those two views every day. And uh, Solomon is also going to remind us of something else, but I, I want to uh, pray right now first, and then we'll get at it. Everybody's got their Bible open. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, say amen. All right, Father, meet with us today in our hearts by your Spirit through your Word because of what Christ has done. Thank you for the power of the Word to sanctify, to save, to sanctify. We come as a needy people. We need to change. We need to better align our thinking with your truth. We need to better serve you and live the gospel. So, have your way as we come back to this important book that helps us to see where people are at in a fallen world. To not forget where we were and what you've done in Christ that has impacted our lives. Bless the word in the next hour as well as this hour today. May our worship be an acceptable sacrifice to you because we've come ready to focus on you and to be a blessing to others. I pray these things in Christ's name and for your glory, Father. You alone merit the glory, deserve the glory. We were made for you, so you be glorified in all of this. And We pray it in your Son's name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now, Solomon is also, I want to tell you what I want, what I want to drive home up front and what I want to get to at the end, and I want us to get more than anything else today, all right? So I want to say it up front in case I, in case I don't make it <laughs> to the end, all right, today, and, and it's this. He's going to remind us why so many people that seem, have seemed to obtain so much yet at the t- same time are so miserable and discontent with this life. He's going to remind us of that. And the way that he's going to remind us, and what we're going to see again today, I hope, it is this, that there is nothing inherent to humanity that is to you and I. You and I, apart from God, we have no capacity in and of ourselves to enjoy this life as intended without God and a real relationship with him that relates to you every day of your life. We have no capacity for that apart from God being real in your life. And I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. Well, okay, let's... uh, Here we go. I've only got about, 
only about 50 overheads today. So let's start with Kenneth Boa in just reminding us of this reality of the, of the book and what, uh, what he's driving home to us. Reports the results of a diligent quest for purpose, meaning, and satisfaction in human life. The preacher pointedly sees the emptiness and futility of life, uh, futility of power, popularity, prestige, pleasure, apart from God. Futility of that. All is what? All is vanity appears 37 times to express the many things that cannot be understood apart from life, about life. Cannot be understood about life. All earthly goals and ambitions, when pursued as ends in and of themselves, lead to dissatisfaction and frustration. So he begins that way. You remember, verse 2, look at your Bible, verse 2. All is vanity, right? And he conveys the, the... theme of that, the reason for that in verse 3. He says, what advantage does many, does, does man have in all of his works which he does under the sun? All is vanity, empty, meaningless of life, and a reason for that is what advantage, what benefit, what gain in all of man's labor, all of man's activity in life under the sun. Archer, remember, he gives us a good quote as to the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a review, but he says it so well. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. It pronounces the verdict of vanity. Of vanity is upon any philosophy of life which regards the created world or human enjoyment as an end in itself. To view personal happiness as the highest good in life, as the highest good, is sheer folly in view of the preeminent value of God himself as over against his created universe. Nor can happiness ever be obtained by pursuing after it since such a pursuit involves the foolishness of self-deification. Or another way, of really saying the same thing. This uh, NBC is uh, MacArthur, the one-volume Bible commentary. He says, in light of the judgment of God, the only fulfilled life is one lived in proper recognition of God and service to him. Any other kind of life is frustrating and pointless. For a time, Solomon suffered from the imbalance of trying to enjoy life without regard for the fear of Yahweh's judgment, holding him on the path of obedience. In the end, he came to grasp the importance of obedience. We'll see that in chapter 12, don't we? This book shows that if a person perceives each day of existence, labor, and basic provision as a gift from God and accepts whatever God gives, then that person lives an abundant life. However, one who looks to be satisfied apart from God will live with futility regardless of his accumulations. So what did Solomon do? In chapter 1 and verses 4, really through 2.18, he says, I'm going to figure this all out on my own with reference to my own wisdom. Look at verse 13 with me quickly. 1.13. 
So he says, I set my mind to seek and explore the wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And he's going to figure out all of life, purpose of life, meaning of life on his own. Right? And he says that's going to be a grievous task. And when he gets done with it, verse 18, remember this is his wisdom journey. Verse 18, he says, all it did is give me a headache. Because in much wisdom there's much grief. Increasing knowledge results in increased pain. So he says, that must not be it. It must be the whole idea of hedonism. So he goes on a pleasure journey. Remember chapter 2, verse 1. So I said to myself, come now. I will test you with what? Test you with pleasure. He even reaches an initial conclusion about that. So then he goes to the pleasure journey, and he gets over in verse 11. And what does he say? Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Notice that last phrase, no profit under the sun. What did he say over in verse 3? What advantage is there work all that he's done under the sun? And he's still back at zero. He's gone on a wisdom journey without God. He's gone on a pleasure journey all about himself, party at the palace, and he says it's still all vanity. He's still at zero. So at this point, Solomon seems to have had everything he desires, but nothing seems to last. Jeremiah, this is a dated quote, but I think it makes the point. Tennis champion Hannah Menlikova, who I knew I was going to stumble over that, was once asked how she felt about defeating great players like Martina Natravr. Martina N. and Chris Everett Lloyd. And she replied, any big win means that all the suffering, practice, and traveling are worth it. I, I, I feel like I, I own the world. And when asked how long that feeling lasts, she said about two minutes. There it is. There it is. Kind of like what it's going to be at our house for Thanksgiving. Deb is going to kill the fatted turkey and the whole counter is going to be filled with food like at your house. By the way, I'm going to take a pic on my phone, and I send it to the kids who didn't make it to our house for Thanksgiving to show them what they missed, all right? And then we'll indulge in that big Thanksgiving dinner, and we'll say to one another, I don't need food for three or four days, you know? And guess what? They all come back that evening for leftovers, and that's what it's like here for Solomon. He's saying, you know, I thought this would bring it about. I thought this would help me to understand. I thought this would be the true satisfaction of life. And he's still, he's still at zero. Solomon had more and did more than anyone before him. He indulged in every desire, sought as a reward for his efforts. He concluded that everything was meaningless. He did not gain anything and simply was trying to grab win. Even though he played out every one of his fantasies in real life, nothing fulfilled and... We are not just talking about Solomon. We're talking about people in our world today. Probably maybe talking about you. Or maybe where you've come from. So, verse 12, there's a bit of a transition. And that comes to our text for today. Look at the beginning of verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. Now, at this point, 
Solomon seems, having looked back, he all of a sudden considers another perspective. He looks over the ground that he's covered, and he conveys some other things that seem to greatly concern him and still cause him to be a bit frustrated. I think Swindoll nails this. He says, when he says, I turned, in other words, I decided to turn in another direction to pursue several things I'd not yet explored. And we see that in these, in these next verses. So I'm going to give you an outline for chapter 12, chapter 2, verses 12 through verse 26. Here's your outline. In verses 12 down through verse 23, he tells you why he hated life. You say, well, that's a little bit harsh. Well, have you read the book? Look over at verse 17 of chapter 2. You still with me? Chapter 2, verse 17, what does he say at the beginning of verse 17? So I what? Yeah. So what he's telling us in 12, verse 12 through verse 23 is why he hated life. And then in verses 24 through 26, he tells us about when life can really be enjoyed. We don't want to, we don't want to miss that. So why, why, why he would hate life is say, well, nobody's like that. Well, Voltaire was supreme humanist, by the way, right, Voltaire? He said, I hate life, and yet I'm afraid to die. Tolstoy said it this way, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer in which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaits me that it doesn't just destroy? Whoa, <laughs> that, is, that is a great question. And where do you find an answer to that, or how is that solved? So what we have in verses 12, now verses 12 through verse 23, why he hated life. I want you to see from our text, Lord willing that you'll see that, five reasons or five causes why Solomon could say that. Five reasons or five causes in his frustration of life that would cause him to declare he would hate it, like others would say, might be, say that express the same thing. Okay, first one is in verse 12. And I'm going to say it, well, let's read the text, and then I'm going to p- make a statement kind of paraphrasing it as a reason. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what wills and serve, but what about the man, what about will the man who will come after the king? What has already been done? Now, I want to say it this way. The first reason or cause that he says he hated life is he's asking the question, who will learn from my past? Who's going to learn that I've already done it all? Who's going to take that in? It's a frustration to him. Who's going to learn from that? And notice he says, who will come after the king? 
In other words, he's saying, what will anyone do or try that I haven't already done and already found it to be zero? Wiersbe says it this way. He says, don't try to outdo me in wisdom, madness, and folly. It won't work. It won't work. Now, more than one commentary suggests, and I believe there is merit to this, when he talks about who will come after the king, he's thinking about his successor. And his successor, quiz question this morning, was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a lousy king. And he did not learn from Solomon's mistakes. He lost most of the kingdom, and he lost all of Solomon's wealth in the process. In fact, there are those, think about it, the text doesn't say it, but there are those who say when Solomon, God is, the Spirit of God is guiding Solomon to write the book of Proverbs, the foolish son that he has in mind is Rehoboam. Maybe. He was certainly what my fifth-grade teacher used to call me, a good example of a bad example. That was Rehoboam. But I think a point here, and he's again, who's going to learn? You know, I've gone through all of this. I'm conveying this. Will anybody learn from it? I think there's a principle we need to grab here, and that is it never works to try to get others to not follow you and say, don't do what I did, do what I say. And if that's true anywhere, it's true in parenting, isn't it? If it's true anywhere, it's in parenting. Often what we do speaks louder to our children than what we tell them or what we say. We need our life to show that period as Christians, but man, does that apply to the home. Can you say amen to that? But a reason, a reason now that he's saying he would hate life is who's going to learn from my past? Let me give you a second one. It's in verses 13 through verse 15. I'll state it this time and then I'll read it. He tells us in these verses that wisdom is better, but it's no cure for the end. He tells us wisdom is better. It's better to have light than darkness, especially when you're gone for a week and you're in a strange place and you try to find your way in a downstairs to get a drink or two, the bathroom lights are off, <laughs> and just off the bathroom is the stairs that go down. One step over here, boop, boop, boop. It didn't happen to me, but I like, I'm just making the simple point, I like light better than darkness. How about you, amen? Well, now watch, he's saying, but it doesn't cure the big problem. What is that? And he's bringing this to us over and over and over again. Verse 13, and I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as light exceeds darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls them both. And then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, what's the use with that, right? Again, there's vanity with that. So, light is better than darkness. And a couple of helpful quotes just reminding us of that basic truth. Yes, better than wisdom is better than foolishness, but the value is only relative, and it does not last. Why? Wisdom's gain over folly is fleeting because both the wise and the fool share the same fate. 
And death is the great equalizer, isn't it? That's Solomon's point. What is the use in exerting all of this energy to be wise if this world is all there is and we all end up as worm food in the end? Why deny myself the seeming fun of the foolish life and work hard to be wise when all at the end of the sa- all end up the same? Death makes meaningless every meaningless even trying to live the right kind of life in this world. That is humanism, right? That's on this level. And then he mentions uh, J. F- uh, John Phillips, excellent help. He says the first three personal pronouns in this verse are emphatic, as though Solomon is astonished to discover that despite his power, wealth, success, influence, wisdom, and great capacity for pleasure, he too is mortal. He was on death's list as surely as the lowest scullion in the kitchen or the most desperate criminal in the palace dungeon awaiting execution. Death is no respecter of persons. And so what happens with, and Solomon's surprised at that, it just reminds him that there's things that don't, that don't make sense to him, things that he doesn't like, things that, doesn't, that don't seem fair. And human wisdom alone and on itself is not going to solve all of that. So he says, secondly then, let me just repeat it, wisdom is better but it's no cure for what's coming. It's no cure for the end. Third, in verse 16, he adds to that by saying a third reason why life can be hated is that there's no lasting memorial to the wise. Let me say that again. Third reason, there's no lasting memorial to the wise. Look at verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. In as much coming days... All will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool are alike. Both die. So a wise may be remembered longer than the fool, but it's not necessarily so. In the end, man is going to be forgotten. In fact, some of the fools might last longer in people's thinking than a wise man. You might remember the name Charles Manson longer than you remember Remember the name of a Winston Churchill. It's just a fact. And no matter who you are or what you've accomplished, ultimately, from a human level, there's no lasting memory. You don't think so. Interview some young people today and ask them, who was George Washington? They might think he's a member of a rock band. Really? We have no history. Kids, young people have no understanding of past history, and key people. And don't look at me surprised. You know that's true, isn't it? Amen? One amen up here. One, just one. Thank you for confirmation. Okay? But you would agree with me. The text is saying there's no lasting remembrance. So, why why, why the life of wisdom? So he hated life. Fourth reason. He says you have no guarantee or control as to all the fruit of your labor. No guarantee, no control as to all of the fruit of your labor. Look at verses 17 through 21. <laughs> this reminds me of my, one of my grandsons saying, Pastor, I, I get it, Ecclesiastes. It's about depression. Well, <laughs> look at 17 through 21. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Why? Because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. 
for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. Now this too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. And when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, has labored with wisdom, knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, thus too is vanity and a great evil. Notice these words, grievous, despaired. Down in verse 23, painful to think about that. I'm going to work my whole life for all of this, and I'm going to, maybe somebody's going to get it and turn around. Throw it all away. Wow. Makes you wonder, what's the purpose then in all of this? Now, I think it's important that we don't forget Proverbs 13.22. Psalm Proverbs 13.22. Let's just bounce there for a moment because... There is wisdom in provision. Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Wow. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. I want you to remember that particular second half of that when we get to verse 26. But a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Okay. So there's some good in that, but is your children or children's children, what are they going to do with it? What are they going to do with it? Makes me remember a statement by a friend who is a believer in the Lord, and he's done quite well, uh, wealth-wise, and in his work and so forth. And, and he was talking about his wealth a little bit, and he says, that ah, doesn't make any difference anyhow, because when I die, the kids are going to get it all. And I'm just wondering... Is that really a biblical view of what God has entrusted you with? If we have something in mind with reference to why we're here and the purpose of the gospel, how does this have anything to do with what Jesus said about laying up for yourself treasures where? There are ways to invest yourself or what you have for eternal purposes. I just want you to think about that this morning. First three, whoop. Ah, Aiken says, eventually the legacy game will not work because eventually your descendants will waste that for which you worked so hard. Statistics say, and I didn't show where he got that, but we're just going to take for granted he's not lying, say that in 60% of the cases, inherited wealth is completely gone by the end of the second generation. The fear of billionaires who are self-made men is that their spoiled children who never knew hunger will have to have, not have the wisdom and resolve to handle so much money. The children of Hall of Famer baseball star Ted Williams. Anybody heard of Ted Williams? It's another generation ago. Tied up so much money fighting over whether to keep him frozen. How about that? Wearsby says this, a writer in the Wall Street Journal called Money, this is good, an article which may be used as a universal passport to everything except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Is that not good or what? Hmm. 
It's bad enough that we must leave our wealth behind, but even worse, that we might leave it to somebody who will waste it. Suppose he or she is a fool and tears down everything we've built up. Solomon didn't know it at the time, but his son, I mentioned that, Rehoboam would do that very thing. Many people have tried to write their wills in such a way that their estates could not be wasted, but they have not always succeeded. In spite of the instruction and good example that they may give, the fathers and mothers have no way of knowing what the next generation will do with the wealth that they've worked so hard to accumulate. Yeah, I hated all my labor, which I'd taken under the because I should leave it unto the man that shall come after me, verse 18. It was his way of saying, you can't take it with you. That may be so, but you can send it on ahead. A preacher friend of mine used to say, if you want to have treasures in heaven, you had better give some money to someone who's going there. I like that. <laughs> Amen? Solomon found the thought of leaving all that he had accumulated to someone else to be profoundly depressing. He had seen too much of what took place when that happened. History gives us scores of illustration. I believe we need to constantly remind ourselves that we are living a life of stewardship. We belong to him. What he entrusts with us ultimately is from him. And one day we will stand before God and give account with what he's entrusted to us. That's a biblical stewardship. Pretty important. And he's, he's saying, wait a minute. In fact, oftentimes you read about uh, pe- people who win the lottery, oftentimes what they win is more of a curse than a blessing in their lives. Now, I know some of you are saying right now, try me, right? <laughs> but let's, let's, let's be real here. If there's treasure in heaven, moth and so forth. You know, the more you have, the more you've got to protect from losing. Right? Get it stolen. Whatever else. Deborah and I have a close friend that's on the West Coast. Made a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And had a bad accountant and lost it all. Let me tell you something about him. He loves the Lord with all of his heart. And is serving him faithfully. Amen, Deborah. We're so grateful for that. And by the way, it came from the ministry of this church back before the flood. Okay? Fifth reason. Fifth reason why life can be hated. Fifth reason, verse 22 and 23, he says this, because the labors of life produce pain and anxiety. The labors of life produce pain and anxiety. How do you get that, Pastor? 22 and 23. For what does a man get in all of his labor and all of his striving which, which he, with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. <laughs> this too is vanity. He's worrying about it. He's worrying about it. Swindoll calls this uh, uh, a response of the workaholic. But I don't think it's just the workaholic. I think it's more about our work becoming our life, period. And would you agree with me this morning? There is a world of difference between saying, what do you do for a living, and asking, what do you live for? Or who do you live for? Then think of all the worry that work brings 
sometimes. By the way, I'm not done with work. I'm not going to say work is bad. That's not going to be my final conclusion. But just think about all the worry that work brings. Sometimes we have so much work to do that we worry about getting it all done. It would help if we could get a full night's sleep. Instead, we lie awake at night obsessing about how we did on yesterday's test or worrying about tomorrow's project. There's no rest for the weary. Notice how long our problems will last all our days, according to verse 23. From beginning to end, life is weary labor with nothing to show for it. If we make our work our life, it will leave us empty. Hear that? If we make our work our life, it will leave us empty. Now, work with the fall produces that very reality, but work is good. We go back before the fall. But, hmm, some of us get so focused on our work, on our work, on our work, and we forget. If I've shared it before, forgive me, but I can use my old-timer's disease as an excuse to say repetition is the key to learning. And that is, I remember working in the foundry. What an education for 18 months. And I'm a core maker working on the line. There's this huge line going through half of the building that was two blocks long. Putting that on there and there. Foreman's come along, keep going, keep, you know, piecework and all of that type of thing. And, and not very far from us over here was a, um, a, a, a coffee machine in a foundry. Oh, that coffee was so terrible. Oh, man. And a guy came up, he worked down where they, where they pour the metal, and he had the whole garb on, safety glasses and shoes, you know, that can, pieces of metal on fire can bounce off the coveralls and everything that we had to wear working in that foundry. And he goes up there, and he gets a cup of coffee, and he turns around to lean on that coffee machine, and he slid down on his posterior, and he died. Somebody said, hey, you know, they were calling in, so somebody shut down the line. Foreman comes out, turn it on, keep the line moving. You know what they did? They just replaced him. And that's what they'll do with you tomorrow if the Lord takes you home. Somebody else is going to have your job. It's true, isn't it? Amen? <laughs> that's life. That's life. And all these reasons then produces this pessimism, what's the use, even fatalism with Solomon, where he will say, why wisdom? Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. Thank God we get to verse 24. Okay? Why life can be enjoyed. Oh, These verses are on an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. Thus they make a turning point in Ecclesiastes, not just on the subject of work, but on the entire argument of the book. Luther called the end of Ecclesiastes 2 a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it. It's this. It's the principal conclusion, Luther said. In fact, it's the point, the whole point of the book. Why now life can be, and for you, should be enjoyed in verses 24 through verse 26. Ah, we're good time-wise. Here it is. There is nothing, and, and it's just all of a sudden, it, it, it's, it's like the, the clouds part. 
And all of a sudden now, Solomon gets from looking at life under the sun, now he looks at life, everybody say it, what? Above the sun. Yeah. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. You underline your Bible? Right there. There's the key. It is from the hand of God. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? For to a person who is good in his sight, he's talking about the believer here, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. Well, come back to that verse in just a moment. But this too is vanity and striving after wind. So now he's telling us how life can be enjoyed. All of a sudden, suddenly, suddenly he gets his theology right. And getting his theology right, he gets his head on straight. Because now he reminds us all of this stuff about life even for the believer, the things that are hard still comes from the hand of God. And what kind of God do we serve? A what kind? A Nahum 1-7. The Lord is... That's your verse this week. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. Amen? Nahum 1-7, Romans 8-28. <laughs> All things, what? Work together for what? Good. Those who know God. Those who are the called to his believers. So all of a sudden, when we bring God into this, that's the whole thing. He gets his head on straight, and all of a sudden, here's the meaningful life. It has contentment in God and his gifts given to man. Key phrase from the hand of God. This is one of the many conclusions of about eight major ones that he makes in the book until he gets to the last chapter. So he says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He remembers. See, remember, I, I'm, I think they're right. This is written at the end of his life, and he's recalling the way that he wandered from God. And then now, he, all of a sudden, he goes, no, but wait a minute. Life can be enjoyed when we view life properly, and that is from God's perspective. And right here now, he's thinking biblically, I wonder how much you and I do that. See? Because when you're saved, God changes your view on work because he changes your view on all of life. And now he sees it as good, as a gift from God. Oh, my Earthly pleasures are a gift from God. They have the limits, of course, so they will never give us eternal satisfaction. But the joy they bring encourages us in the worship of God. Isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panning after every pleasure, the less you find. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. It is strange but true. When we receive the good things in life as a gift, rather than taking them as entitlement, we experience genuine joy and true thankfulness. And so here's our, here's our perspective. This is key in all of it, and you know this. 
whether we eat or whether we drink, when our perspective is right, we do all to the what? Glory of God. And it prompts worship. Thank you, God, for everything. Praise you for all things. How you're working, what you're doing in all things. Wearsby, life and death, wisdom and wealth are all in hands. He wants us to enjoy his blessings and please his heart. If we rejoice in the gift but forget the giver, then we are ungrateful idolaters. Wow. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time. Each and every day of our lives, instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts of themselves and see the hand of God in them, in all things. James 1.17, every perfect gift, every perfect gift comes down from where the Father of lights. It's all from him. What do you deserve from him? What do you merit from God for your sin? You merit his his wrath and hell. And yet, what has he done? What does a sinner deserve? But in salvation, listen, new life in Christ, in new life in Christ, God gives you and he gifts you with enlightenment, opens your mind, understanding, to know him and pleasure to enjoy him. I just wanted this morning, you enjoy the Lord? Are you just thankful. I was thinking about handing out cards this week and asking you to write down, maybe you want to take the challenge, write down three things uh, that you are, three blessings in your life, three things that you are thankful for every day, just three things every morning. Don't do it at night, you'll forget it. Do it in the morning. Do it in the morning, three things, and don't repeat the three things and do it for a week or two. And just aid you in developing a spirit-empowered life that involves being thankful. Because it is so easy, and we, our hearts truly are a factory of idols. It's so easy for us to focus on certain things we want or we don't have or we want to see God do rather than be thankful. And being thankful, realizing his blessings, and realizing his blessings produces praise and, and worship and joy in our lives. So, Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good, that is saved in his sight, he has given wisdom. That's how I understand it. He's he's contrasting it. Those who know God, those who don't, given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering, collecting, so much that he may give to to the saved, to the one who is good. I think Swindoll wraps it up well here. He says, now comes Solomon's flash of insight. Those who are right with God derive the benefit of everyone else's labor. The world thinks it's building its fortune for itself, yet ultimately the Christian benefits from most of it. Now, what do we take from this? Work rightly understood is one of God's greatest gifts to man. Can we say amen to that? Work was given to us. If we have sons, we remind us work is good. It was given to us before the fall. Work has become hard since the fall, but work is still good. It's still a gift from God. Thank God for your work. Thank God for your health to be able to work. Thank God for your job. And let it be evident in the way that you do your work. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 
for God, for the glory of God. Amen? Okay, rightly understood. One of God's greatest gifts. Work rightly understood as a gift of God motivates worship. I've mentioned that, I've said that, and it should be true. It is our worship. Our work is our worship. Number three, joy is a crowning gift of God in this meaningless world. We have that joy based upon that relationship with the Lord and understanding his goodness and his glory in all things. And, and joy in having all that we need in the word of God to know him and to live lives that are pleasing to him and to know why we're here and who we're serving. Number four, purpose and means to all of life is a matter of your theology. Do you live as, I like the way J. Adams says it, do you live every day with God as your environment? In other words, you see him working in everything. And so you're communing with him because he's working, because you love him. And what, what you're enjoying comes from his hand. And so he just, he's just part of everything that you're doing rather than God is the one you hear about on Sunday and then you get back to living for yourself. And there's no joy in that. Amen? Let's all say it. There's no joy in that. There's no joy in self-service. <laughs> and number five, there is nothing inherent to or in man for him to enjoy life as intended. That's what I said at the beginning and I'm closing with it. Without And if you can't fill in that blank, I'm going to have you run laps around the church. There is nothing inherent to and for man to enjoy life as intended without what power you have. I'm sure that was heard in heaven. Okay, let's try that again. Nothing inherent to all man for him to enjoy life as intended without as the giver of life and all good gifts. Amen? I'm so glad Solomon gets his head straight, but guess what? He gets down back under the sun again. The next week we're going to hit that package, a passage in chapter 3 that we all know. There's a time and season for everything. What's the point of that? Let's think through it together. Some of you that thought we'd never get to chapter 3, I'm rebuking you right now. <laughs> we'll be in chapter 3 next week. Let's pray. Now, what are you praying as a result of what you heard today? What are you praying right now? Oh, God. Thank you for invading our lives. We were dead. No desire for anything, but we were self-worshippers. And you invaded our lives with the truth of the gospel, brought us from darkness to light, from death to life because of Christ. Well, may that be the testimony of every person in this room right now. You have life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you have life because he died for you in your place for your sin. And now we have purpose. Now we have joy because of you. And we give you praise for that. And as we come back to seeing you again through the word in this next hour, may it just increase our hearts for you. We love you and thank you. You first loved us, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.